What does Evie discover when she finds the cursed, closed cabinet open? Anonymous, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. The vintage episodes of the Classic Tales Podcast are in full swing. Every Monday and Wednesday. Monday, we'll have The Baron of Grogsvig by Charles Dickens. And on Wednesday, The Ambitious Guest by Nathaniel Hawthorne. It actually takes quite a bit more work to release three episodes a week instead of one. So if you'd like more vintage episodes, please go to classictalesaudiobooks.com and become a monthly supporter. Thanks for helping us out. This week continues our story by Anonymous of The Closed Cabinet, jointly narrated with Nancy Peterson. Last week, we met Evie, who is visiting her esteemed cousins, the Mervins, who live on an ancient estate with a wicked history. Featured in this history is a room with a closed cabinet, where it is rumored that a girl died when she slept there 150 years ago. Events so fell out that Evie has to stay in this room for several nights. Each night, she has terrible dreams. Note how Evie's reaction to the elements helps to move the story along and adds to the supernatural nature of the story. It's a small step from reacting strongly to the wind to reacting to other invisible things. And now, The Closed Cabinet. Part 2 of 3 by Anonymous, narrated with Nancy Peterson. Four. The men went out shooting directly after breakfast, and we women passed the day in orthodox country house fashion, working and eating, walking and riding, driving and playing croquet, and above, beyond, and through all things, chattering. Beyond a passing sigh while I was washing my hands, or a moment of mournful remembrance while I changed my dress, I had scarcely time even to regret the quiet happiness of the week that was past. In the evening, we danced in the great hall. I had two valses with Alan. During a pause for breath, I found that we were standing near the fireplace, on the very spot where he and George had stood on the previous afternoon. The recollection made me involuntarily glance up at his face. It looked sad and worried, and the thought suddenly struck me that his extravagant spirits of the night before, and even his quieter, careful cheerfulness of tonight, had been but artificial moods at best. He turned and finding my eyes fixed on him, at once plunged into conversation, discussed the peculiarities of one of the guests, good-humouredly enough, but with so much fun as to make me laugh in spite of myself. Then we danced again. The plaintive music, the smooth floor, and the partner were all alike perfect, and I experienced that entire delight of physical enjoyment which I believe nothing but a valse under such circumstances can give. When it was over, I turned to Alan and exclaimed with impulsive appeal, Oh, I am so happy. You must be happy too. He smiled rather uncertainly and answered, Don't bother yourself about me, Evie. I am all right. I told you that we Mervins had bad nerves, and I am rather tired. That's all. I was too passionately determined just then upon happiness, and his was too necessary to mine for me not to believe that he was speaking the truth. We kept up the dancing till Lucy discovered with a shock that midnight had struck and that Sunday had begun, and we were all sent off to bed. I was not long in making my nightly preparations, and had scarcely inserted myself between the sheets when... With a few long moans, the wind began again, more violently even than the night before. It had been a calm, fine day, and I made wise reflections as I listened upon the uncertainty of the North Country climate. What a tempest it was! How it moaned and howled and shrieked! 
where had I heard the superstition which now came to my mind? That borne upon the wind come the spirits of the drowned, wailing and crying for the sepulchre which had been denied them. But there were other sounds in that wind, too. Evil, murderous thoughts, perhaps, which had never taken body in deeds, but which, caught up in the air, now hurled themselves in impotent fury through the world. How I wished the wind would stop. It seemed full of horrible fancies, and it kept knocking them into my head, and it wouldn't leave off. Fancies? Or memories? Which? And my mind reverted with a flash to the fearful thoughts which had haunted it the day before in Dame Alice's tower. It was dark now. Those ghastly, intangible shapes must have taken full form and color, peopling the old ruin with their ageless hideousness. And the storm had found them there and borne them along with it as it blew through the creviced walls. That was why the wind sound struck so strangely on my brain. Oh, I could hear them now, those still living memories of dead horror. Through the window crannies, they came shrieking and wailing. They filled the chimney with spirit sobs. And now they were pressing on, crowding through the room, eager, eager to reach their prey. Nearer they came, nearer still. They were round my bed now. Through my closed eyelids, I could almost see their dreadful shapes. In all my quivering flesh, I felt their terrors as they bent over me. Lower, lower. With a start, I aroused myself and sat up. Was I asleep or awake? I was trembling all over still, and it required the greatest effort of courage I had ever made to enable me to spring from my bed and strike a light. What a state my nerves or my digestion must be in. From my childhood, the wind had always affected me strangely, and I blamed myself now for allowing my imagination to run away with me at the first. I found a novel which I had brought up to my room with me, one of the modern Chinese-American school, where human nature is analyzed with the patient, industrious indifference of the true celestial. I took the book to bed with me, and soon under its soothing influences fell asleep. I dreamt a good deal, nightmares, the definite recollection of which, as is so often the case, vanished from my mind as soon as I awoke, leaving only a vague impression of horror. They had been connected with the wind, of that alone I was conscious. And I went down to breakfast, maliciously hoping that others' rest had been as much disturbed as my own. To my surprise, however, I found that I had again been the only sufferer. Indeed, so impressed were most of the party with the quiet in which their night had been passed, that they boldly declared my storm to have been the creature of my dreams. There is nothing more annoying when you feel yourself aggrieved by fate than to be told that your troubles have originated in your own fancy. So I dropped the subject. Though the discussion spread for a few minutes around the whole table, Alan took no part in it. Neither did George, except for what I thought a rather unnecessarily rough expression of his disbelief in the cause of my night's disturbance. As we rose from breakfast... I saw Alan glance toward his brother and make a movement, evidently with the purpose of speaking to him. Whether or not George was aware of the look or action, I cannot say. But at the same moment, he made rapidly across the room to where one of his principal guests was standing, and at once engaged him in conversation. So earnestly and so volubly was he borne on, that they were still talking together when we ladies appeared again some minutes later prepared for our walk to church. That was not the only occasion during the day on which I witnessed, as I thought, the same by-play going on. Again and again, Alan appeared to be making efforts to engage George in private conversation. 
and again and again the latter successfully eluded him. The church was about a mile away from the house, and as Lucy did not like having the carriages out on a Sunday, one service a week as a rule contented the household. In the afternoon we took the usual Sunday walk. On returning from it, I had just taken off my outdoor things and was issuing from my bedroom when I found myself face to face with Alan. He was coming out of George's study, and had succeeded, apparently, in obtaining that interview for which he had been all day seeking. One glance at his face told me what its nature had been. We paused opposite each other for a moment, and he looked at me earnestly. Are you going to church? he inquired at last, abruptly. No, I answered with some surprise. I did not know that anyone was going this evening. Will you come with me? Yes, certainly, if you don't mind waiting a moment for me to put my things on. There's plenty of time, he answered. Meet me in the hall. A few minutes later we started. It was a calm, cloudless night, and although the moon was not yet half full and already past her meridian, she filled the clear air with gentle light. Not a word broke our silence. Alan walked hurriedly, looking straight before him, his head upright, his lips twitching nervously, while every now and then a half-uttered moan escaped unconsciously from between them. At last I could bear it no longer, and burst forth with the first remark which occurred to me. We were passing a big, black, queer-shaped stone, standing in rather a lonely, uncultivated spot at one end of the garden. It was an old acquaintance of my childhood. But my thoughts had been turned towards it now from the fact that I could see it from my bedroom window, and had been struck afresh by its uncouth, incongruous appearance. Isn't there some story connected with that stone? I asked. I remember that we always called it the dead stone as children. Alan cast a quick sidelong glance in that direction, and his brows contracted in an irritable frown. I don't know, he answered shortly. They say there is a woman buried beneath it, I believe. A woman buried there, I exclaimed in surprise. But who? How should I know? They know nothing whatever about it. The place is full of stupid traditions of that kind. Then, looking suspiciously round at me... Why do you ask? I don't know. It was just something to say, I answered plaintively. His strange mood so worked upon my nerves that it was all that I could do to restrain my tears. I think that my tone struck his conscience, for he made a few feverish attempts at conversation after that but they were so entirely abortive that he soon abandoned the effort, and we finished our walk to church as speechlessly as we had begun it. The service was bright, and the sermon perhaps a little commonplace, but sensible, as it seemed to me in matter, and adequate in style. The peaceful evening hymn which followed, the short solemn pause of silent prayer at the end, soothed and refreshed my spirit. A hasty glance at my companion's face as he stood waiting for me in the porch, with the full light from the church streaming round him, assured me that the same influence had touched him too. Haggard and sad he still looked, it is true, but his features were composed, and the expression of actual pain had left his eyes. Silent as we had come, we started homeward through the waning moonlight, but this silence was of a very different nature to the other, and after a minute or two I did not hesitate to break it. It was a good sermon, I observed interrogatively. Yes, he assented. I suppose you would call it so, but I confess that I should have found the text more impressive without its exposition. Poor man. But don't you often find it so? he asked. Do you not often wish? to take this evening's instance, that clergymen would infuse themselves with something of St. Paul's own spirit, then perhaps they would not water all the strength out of his words in their efforts to explain them. 
That is rather a large demand to make upon them, is it not? Is it? He questioned. I don't expect them to be inspired saints. I don't expect St. Paul's breadth and depth of thought. But could they not have something of his vigorous completeness, something of the intensity of his feeling and belief? Look at the text of tonight. Did not the preacher's examples and applications take something from its awful unqualified strength? Awful, I exclaimed in surprise. That is hardly the expression I should have used in connection with those words. Why not? Oh, I don't know. The text is very beautiful, of course, and at times, when people are tiresome and one ought to be nice to them, it is very difficult to act up to, but... But you think that awful is a rather big adjective to use for so small a duty, interposed Alan, and the moonlight showed the flicker of a smile upon his face. Then he continued gravely, I doubt whether you yourself realize the full import of the words. The precept of charity is not merely a code of rules by which to order our conduct to our neighbors. It is the picture of a spiritual condition, and such, where it exists in us, must by its very nature be roused into activity by anything that affects us. So with this particular injunction, every circumstance in our lives is a challenge to it. And in presence of all alike, it admits of one attitude only, beareth all things, endureth all things. I hope it will be long before that all sticks in your gizzard, Evie, before you come face to face with things which nature cannot bear, and yet which must be borne. He stopped, his voice quivering, and then, after a pause, went on again more calmly. And throughout it all, it is the same. Moral precepts everywhere, which will admit of no compromise, no limitation, and yet which are at war with our strongest passions. If one could only interpose some unless, some except, even an until, which should be short of the grave. But we cannot. The law is infinite, universal, eternal. There is no escape. No repose. Resist, strive, endure. That is the recurring cry. That is existence. And peace, I exclaimed appealingly. Where is there room for peace, if that be true? He sighed for answer, and then in a changed and lower tone added. However thickly the clouds mass, however vainly we search for a coming glimmer in their midst. We never doubt that the sky is still beyond, beyond and around us, infinite and infinitely restful. He raised his eyes as he spoke, and mine followed his. We had entered the wooded glen. Through the scanty autumn foliage, we could see the stars shining faintly in the dim moonlight, and beyond them, the deep, illimitable blue. A dark world, it looked, distant and mysterious, and my young spirit rebelled at the consolation offered me. Peace seems a long way off, I whispered. It is for me, he answered gently. Not necessarily for you. Oh, but I am worse and weaker than you are. If life is to be all warfare, I must be beaten. I cannot always be fighting. Cannot you, Evie? What I have been saying is true of every moral law worth having, of every ideal of life worth striving over, that men have yet conceived. But it is only half the truth of Christianity. You know that. We must strive, for the promise is to him that overcometh. But though our aim be even higher than is that of others, we cannot in the end fail to reach it. The victory of the cross is ours. You know that? You believe that? Yes, I answered, softly, too surprised to say more. In speaking of religion, he, as a rule, 
showed to the full the reserve which is characteristic of his class and country. And this sudden outburst was in itself astonishing. But the eager anxiety with which he emphasized the last words of appeal impressed and bewildered me still further. We walked on for some minutes in silence. Then suddenly Alan stopped, and turning, took my hand in his. In what direction his mind had been working in the interval, I could not divine. But the moment he began to speak, I felt that he was now for the first time giving utterance to what had been really at the bottom of his thoughts the whole evening. Even in that dim light, I could see the anxious look upon his face, and his voice shook with restrained emotion. Heavy, he said. Have you ever thought of the world in which our spirits dwell, as our bodies do in this one of matter and sense, and of how it may be peopled? I know, he went on hurriedly, that it is the fashion nowadays to laugh at such ideas. I envy those who have never had the cause to be convinced of their reality, and I hope that you may long remain among the number. But should that not be so? Should those unseen influences ever touch your life? I want you to remember then that, as one of the race for whom Christ died, you have as high a citizenship in that spirit land as any creature there, that you are your own soul's warden, and that neither principalities nor powers can rob you of that, your birthright. I think my face must have shown my bewilderment, for he dropped my hand and walked on with an impatient sigh. You don't understand me. Why should you? I dare say that I am talking nonsense. Only, only... His voice expressed such an agony of doubt and hesitation that I burst out. I think that I do understand you a little, Alan. You mean that even from unearthly enemies, there is nothing that we need really fear. At least, that is, I suppose, nothing worse than death. But that is surely enough. Why should you fear death? He said abruptly. Your soul will live. Yes, I know that, but still... I stopped with a shudder. What is life, after all, but one long death? He went on with sudden violence. Our pleasures, our hopes, our youth are all dying. Ambition dies, and even desire at last. Our passions and tastes will die or will live only to mourn their dead opportunity. The happiness of love dies with the loss of the loved, and worst of all, love itself grows old in our hearts and dies. Why should we shrink only from the one death which can free us from all the others? It is not true, Alan, I cried hotly. What you say is not true. There are many things even here which are living and shall live, and if it were otherwise, in everything... Life that ends in death is better than no life at all. You say that, he answered, because for you these things are yet living. To leave life now, therefore, while it is full and sweet, untainted by death, surely that is not a fate to fear. Better, a thousand times better, to see the cord cut with one blow while it is still whole and strong and to launch out straight into the great ocean than to sit watching through the slow years, while strand after strand, thread by thread, loosens and unwinds itself, each with its own separate pang, breaking, bringing the bitterness of death without its release. His manner, the despairing ring in his voice, alarmed me even more than his words. Clinging to his arms with both hands while the tears sprang to my eyes. Alan, I cried, don't say such things. Don't talk like that. You're making me miserable. He stopped short at my words with bent head, his features hidden in the shadow thus cast upon them. Nothing in his motionless form to show what was passing within him. Then he looked up and turned his face to the moonlight and to me laying his hand on one of mine. Don't be afraid, he said. It is all right, my little David. 
You have driven the evil spirit away. And lifting my hand, he pressed it gently to his lips. Then drawing it within his arm, he went on as he walked forward. And even when it was on me at its worst, I was not meditating suicide, as I think you imagine. I am a very average specimen of humanity, neither brave enough to defy the possibilities of eternity, nor cowardly enough to shirk those of time. No. I was only trying idiotically to persuade a girl of eighteen that life was not worth living, and more futilely still myself, that I did not wish her to live. I am afraid that in my mind philosophy and fact have but small connection with each other, and though my theorizing for your welfare may be true enough, yet I cannot help it, Evie. It would go terribly hard with me if anything were to happen to you. His voice trembled as he finished. My fear had gone with his return to his natural manner, but my bewilderment remained. Why should there anything happen to me? I asked. That is just it, he answered after a pause, looking straight in front of him and drawing his hand wearily over his brow. I know of no reason why there should. Then, giving a sigh, as if finally to dismiss from his mind a worrying subject. I have acted for the best, he said, and may God forgive me if I have done wrong. There was a little silence after that, and then he began to talk again, steadily and quietly. The subject was deep enough still, as deep as any that we had touched upon, but both voice and sentiment were calm, bringing peace to my spirit, and soon making me forget the wonder and fear of a few moments before. Very openly did he talk as we passed on across the long trunk shadows and through the glades of silver light, and I saw farther than into the most sacred recesses of his soul than I have ever done before or since. When we reached home, the moon had already set, but some of her beams seemed to have been left behind within my heart. So pure and peaceful was the light which filled it. The same feeling continued with me all through that evening. After dinner, some of the party played and sang. As it was Sunday, and Lucy was rigid in her views, the music was of a sacred character. I sat in a low armchair in a dark corner of the room, my mind too dreamy to think and too passive to dream. I hardly interchanged three words with Alan, who remained in a still darker spot, invisible and silent the whole time. Only as we left the room to go to bed, I heard Lucy ask him if he had a headache. I did not hear his answer, and before I could see his face, he had turned back again into the drawing room. Five. It was early, and when first I got to my room, I felt little inclined for sleep. I wandered to the window, and drawing aside the curtains, looked out upon the still, starlit sky. At least I should rest quiet tonight. The air was very clear, and the sky seemed full of stars. As I stood there, scraps of schoolroom learning came back to my mind, that the stars were all suns, surrounded perhaps in their turn by worlds as large or larger than our own. Worlds beyond worlds, and others farther still, which no man might number or even descry. And about the distance of those wonderful suns, too, that one, for instance, at which I was looking, what was it that I had been told? That our world was not yet peopled, perhaps, not yet formed, when the actual spot of light which now struck my sight first started from the star's surface. While it flashed along, itself the very symbol of speed, the whole of mankind had had time to be born and live and die. My gaze dropped and fell upon the dim half-seen outline of the dead stone, that woman too. While that one ray speeded towards me, her life had been lived and ended, and her body had rotted away into the ground. 
how close together we all were. Her life and mine, our joys, sufferings, deaths, all crowded together in the space of one flash of light. And yet there was nothing there but a horrible skeleton of dead bones, while I... I stopped with a shudder and turned back into the room. I wish that Alan had not told me what lay under the stone. I wish that I had never asked him. It was a ghastly thing to think about and spoiled all the beauty of the night to me. I got quickly into bed and soon dropped to sleep. I do not know how long I slept, but when I woke, it was with the consciousness again of that haunting wind. It was worse than ever. The world seemed filled with its din, hurling itself passionately against the house. It gathered strength with every gust till it seemed as if the old walls must soon crash in ruins around me. Gust upon gust, blow upon blow, swelling, lessening, never ceasing. The noise surrounded me. It penetrated my inmost being, as all-pervading as silence itself and wrapping me in a solitude even more complete. There was nothing left in the world but the wind and I. And then a weird, intangible doubt as to my own identity seized me. The wind was real, the wind with its echoes of passion and misery from the eternal abyss. But was there anything else? What was and what had been the world of sense and of knowledge, my own consciousness, my very self, all seemed gathered up and swept away in that one soul-existent fury of sound. I pulled myself together, and getting out of bed, groped my way to the table which stood between the bed and the fireplace. The matches were there, and my half-burnt candle, which I lit, the wind penetrating the rattling casement circled round the room, and the flame of my candle bent and flared and shrank before it, throwing strange moving lights and shadows in every corner. I stood there shivering in my thin nightdress, half stunned by the cataract of noise beating on the walls outside, and peered anxiously around me. The room was not the same. Something was changed. What was it? How the shadows leaped and fell, dancing in time to the wind's music. Everything seemed alive. I turned my head slowly to the left, and then to the right, and then round, and stopped with a sudden gasp of fear. The cabinet was open. I looked away and back and again. There was no room for doubt. The doors were thrown back and were waving gently in the draught. One of the lower drawers was pulled out, and in a sudden flare of candlelight I could see something glistening at its bottom. Then the light dwindled again, the candle was almost out, and the cabinet showed a dim black mass in the darkness. Up and down went the flame and each returning brightness flashed back at me from the thing inside the drawer. I stood fascinated, my eyes fixed upon the spot, waiting for the fitful glitter as it came and went. What was there? I knew that I must go and see, but I did not want to. If only the cabinet would close again before I looked, before I knew what was inside it. But it stood open, and the glittering thing lay there, dragging me towards itself. Slowly, at last, with infinite reluctance, I went. The drawer was lined with soft white satin, and upon the satin lay a long, slender knife, hilted and sheathed in antique silver, richly set with jewels. I took it up and turned back to the table to examine it. It was Italian in workmanship, and I knew that the carving and chasing of the silver were more precious even than the jewels which studded it. And whose rough setting gave so firm a grasp to my hand? Was the blade as fair as the covering, I wondered? 
a little resistance at first, and then the long, thin steel slid easily out. Sharp and bright, and finely tempered, it looked with its deadly tapering point. Stains, dull and irregular, crossed the fine engraving on its surface and dimmed its polish. I bent to examine them more closely, and as I did so, a sudden stronger gust of wind blew out the candle. I shuddered a little at the darkness and looked up. But it did not matter. The curtain was still drawn away from the window opposite my bedside, and through it a flood of moonlight was pouring in upon floor and bed. Pushing the sheath down upon the table, I walked to the window to examine the knife more closely by that pale light. How gloriously brilliant it was, darkened now and again by the quickly passing shadows of wind-driven clouds. At least so I thought, and I glanced up and out of the window to see them. A black world met my gaze. Neither moon was there nor moonlight. The broad silver beam in which I stood stretched no farther than the window. I caught my breath and my limbs stiffened as I looked. No moon, no cloud, no movement in the clear, calm, starlit sky. While still the ghastly light stretched round me and the spectral shadows drifted across the room. But it was not all dark outside. One spot caught my eye, bright with a livid, unearthly brightness. The dead stone shining out into the night like an ember from hell's furnace. There was a horrid semblance of life in the light, a palpitating, breathing glow, and my pulses beat in time to it, till I seemed to be drawing it into my veins. It had no warmth, and as it entered my blood, my heart grew colder and my muscles more rigid. My fingers clutched the dagger hilt till its jeweled roughness pressed painfully into my palm. All the strength of my strained powers seemed gathered in that grasp. And the more tightly I held, the more vividly did the rock gleam and quiver with infernal life. The dead woman. The dead woman. What had I to do with her? Let her bones rest in the filth of their own decay, out there under the accursed stone. And now the noise of the wind lessens in my ears. Let it go on. Yes, louder and wilder, drowning my senses in its tumult. What is there with me in the room? The great empty room behind me? Nothing. Only the cabinet with its waving doors. They're waving to and fro, to and fro. I know it. But there is no other life in the room but that. No, no. No other life in the room but that. Oh, don't let the wind stop. I can't hear anything while it goes on. But if it stops, oh, the gusts grow weaker, struggling, forced into rest. Now... Now they have ceased. Silence. A fearful pause. What is that that I hear? There, behind me in the room. Do I hear it? Is there anything? The throbbing of my own blood in my ears. No, no. There is something as well. Something outside myself. What is it? Low, heavy, regular. God, it is, it is the breath of a living creature. A living creature here, close to me, alone with me. The numbness of terror conquers me. I can neither stir nor speak. Only my whole soul strains at my ears to listen. Where does the sound come from? Close behind me? Close. Ah, 
It is from there. From the bed where I was lying a moment ago. I try to shriek, but the sound gurgles unuttered in my throat. I clutch the stone mullions of the window and press myself against the panes. If I could but throw myself out, anywhere, anywhere, away from that dreadful sound, from that thing close behind me in the bed. But I can do nothing. The wind has broken forth again now. The storm crashes round me. And still through it all, I hear the ghastly breathing, even, low, scarcely audible. But I hear it. I shall hear it as long as I live. Is the thing moving? Is it coming nearer? No, no, not that. That was but a fancy to freeze me dead. But to stand here with that creature behind me, listening, waiting for the warm horror of its breath to touch my neck. Oh, I cannot. I will look. I will see it face to face. Better any agony than this one. Slowly, with held breath, and eyes aching in their stretched fixity, I turn. There it is. Clear in the moonlight, I see the monstrous form within the bed. The dark coverlet rises and falls with its heaving breath. Oh, heaven have mercy. Is there none to help, none to save me from this awful presence? And the knife hilt draws my fingers round it, while my flesh quivers and my soul grows sick with loathing. The wind howls, the shadows chase through the room, hunting with fearful darkness more fearful light, and I stand looking, listening. I must not stand here forever. I must be up and doing. What a noise the wind makes and the rattling of the windows and the doors. If he sleeps through this, he will sleep through all. Noiselessly, my bare feet tread the carpet as I approach the bed. Noiselessly, my left arm raises the heavy curtain. What does it hide? Do I not know? The bestial features, half hidden in coarse black growth. The muddy, blotched skin, oozing foulness at every pore. Oh, I know them too well. What a monster it is. How the rank breath gurgles through his throat in his drunken sleep. The eyes are closed now, but I know them too. Their odious leer and the venomous hatred with which they can glare at me from their bloodshot setting. But the time has come at last. Never again shall their passion insult me or their fury degrade me in slavish terror. There he lies, there at my mercy. The man who for fifteen years has made God's light a shame to me, and his darkness a terror. The end has come at last. The only end possible, the only end left me. On his head be the blood and the crime. God Almighty, I am not guilty. The end has come. I can bear my burden no farther. Beareth all things, endureth all things. Where have I heard those words? They are in the Bible, the precept of charity. What has that to do with me? Nothing. I heard the words in my dreams somewhere. A white-faced man said them. A white-faced man with pure eyes. To me? No, no, not to me. To a girl it was. An ignorant, innocent girl. And she accepted them as an eternal, unqualified law. Let her bear but half that I have borne. 
Let her endure but one-tenth of what I have endured, and then if she dare, let her speak in judgment against me. Softly now, I must draw the heavy coverings away and bear his breast to the stroke. The stroke that shall free me. I know well where to plant it. I have learned that from the old lady's Italian. Did he guess why I questioned him so closely of the surest, straightest road to a man's heart? No matter. He cannot hinder me now. Gently, oh, I have disturbed him. He moves, mutters in his sleep, throws out his arm. Down, down, crouching behind the curtain. Heavens, if he wakes and sees me, he will kill me. No, alas, if only he would. I would kiss the hand that he struck me with, but he is too cruel for that. He will imagine some new and more hellish torture to punish me with, but the knife, I have got that. He shall never touch me living again. He is quieter now. I hear his breath, hoarse and heavy as a wild beast's panting. He draws it more evenly, more deeply. The danger is past. Thank God. God. What have I to do with him? A God of judgment. Ha ha. Hell cannot frighten me. It will not be worse than earth. Only he will be there too. Not with him. Not with him. Send me to the lowest circle of torment, but not with him. There. His breast is bare now. Is the knife sharp? Yes. And the blade is strong enough. Now let me strike. Myself afterwards, if need be, but him first. Is it the devil that prompts me? and the devil is my friend, and the friend of the world. No, God is a God of love. He cannot wish such a man to live. He made him, but the devil sport him, and let the devil have his handiwork back again. It has served him long enough here, and its last service shall be to make me a murderess. How the moonlight gleams from the blade as my arm swings up and back. With how close a grasp the rough hilt draws my fingers round it. Now, a murderess? Wait a moment. A moment may make me free. A moment may make me that. Wait. Hand and dagger droop again. His life has dragged its slime over my soul. Shall his death poison it with a fouler corruption still? My own soul's warden. What was that? Dream memories again. Resist, strive, endure. Easy words. What do they mean for me? to creep back now to bed by his side, and to begin living again tomorrow the life which I have lived today? No, no, I cannot do it. Heaven cannot ask it of me. And there is no other way. That or this, this or that, which shall it be? Oh, I have striven, God knows. I have endured so long that I hoped even to do so to the end. But today, oh, the torment and the outrage, body and soul still bear the stain of it. I thought that my heart and my pride were dead together. But he has stung them again into aching, shameful life. Yesterday I might have spared him to save my own cold soul from sin. But now it is cold no longer. It burns. It burns and the fire must be slaked. I, I will kill him and have done with it. Why should I pause any longer? 
The knife drags my hand back for the stroke. Only the dream surrounds me. The pure man's face is there, white, beseeching, and God's voice rings in my heart. To him that overcometh. But I cannot overcome. Evil has governed my life, and evil is stronger than I am. What shall I do? What shall I do? God, if thou art stronger than evil, fight for me. The victory of the cross is ours. Yes, I know it. It is true. It is true. But the knife, I cannot lose the knife if I would. Thou to wrench it from my own hold. Thou God of victory, be with me. Christ, help me. I seize the blade with my left hand. The two-edged steel slides through my grasp. A sharp pain in fingers and palm. And then, nothing. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of The Closed Cabinet, Part 2 of 3, by Anonymous. We've got more spooky stories by Sheridan Lefanu, M.R. James, H.P. Lovecraft, and others at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. Click on over and check it out. Thanks for pitching in. And keep an eye open for the vintage episodes coming on Monday and Wednesday. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me next time, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper.